Support for Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Brook Green Gardens, presenting Bruce Monroe, Southern Light, an outdoor immersive exhibit featuring seven large-scale works of art and light. Now open Wednesday through Saturday evenings. Advanced tickets are required and are available at brookgreen.org. Hello and welcome to Spoleto Backstage. It's your ticket not only to a few of Spoleto Festival USA's most memorable performances, but also to some of the behind-the-scenes action and the personalities that have made it all possible. Even in this unprecedented year without a Spoleto Festival, a year without so, so many things, there's way more than enough to enjoy and explore from past seasons. Plus, Plenty to catch up on when it comes to some of the festival's longtime stars and chamber music heavyweights. I'm really excited to have on today's episode one of those heavyweights, pianist Inan Farnaton. So we'll hear from him about some of his musical activities and everything else he's been up to here recently. Really excited to share that conversation. And of course, I'm also really excited to be co-hosting once more with one of those other chamber music fixtures, phenomenal violinist and performer. That's Jeff Nuttall. Jeff, great to have you today. Great to be back talking music with you and sharing some of these, uh, well, the greatest hits, so to speak. Great memories for me to go through these during the time of this pandemic. Yes. I mean, you know, in a way it's, it's kind of the pause button. I've heard a lot of people call the pandemic the pause button to give you a chance to just go back and look over some of these great performances from the past, maybe uh, recollect and and get inspiration for the future too, because I think musicians can be a very self-critical bunch. And for you, hopefully this is a chance to say, hey, that was that was a really cool program. Like, I can't wait to do this until another time and, and make another program with uh, similar offerings, but, you know, a, a totally new thing too. And this music ahead of us today, we have a really nice balance here between an Italian Baroque composer and a German romantic. Yeah, I love, you know, it's a good reminder. You, you brought it up, Bradley, but music is to be listened to. I mean, it's the, the simple act. You can't make it better than that. So I, I just love the fact that we have these live performances that we can sort of rediscover, so to speak, and just listen, listen to great music and also listen to some of the energy on stage. So I love the Vivaldi Brahms thing. You don't think there's any connection, but I think there is. There's a lot of visceral rhythmic energy that's similar. And Vivaldi, for me, how do I put this? You know, it's sort of like, I like hamburgers. I don't know how you feel about hamburgers, but I love ha- a good hamburger. They're okay. So, yeah, you're not okay. Well, you know, in and out Burger, I make my own now. You have a good hamburger. It's really good. And the next time you have a really good hamburger, it's not less good because you had one the last time. And it's the same sort of thing, right? It's So for me, Vivaldi is like a hamburger because there are literally 600 plus concertos by Vivaldi, but I've rarely come across one that I thought was a dud or didn't taste really good, even though they're very similar in how they're put together. You know, the hamburger has the bun and then the meat and stuff and then another bun. And Vivaldi, almost, I mean, 95% of his concertos have three movements, fast, slow, and fast. The structure is the same in all. But the invention, the imagination, the connection to the instruments, the orchestration, the, the use of color, uh, gestural rhythms, it's, it's, it's really quite unparalleled what he managed to do. So I never get tired of 
Vivaldi or hamburgers for that matter. Actually, you know, Jeff, I have to admit, I've been having too much fast food lately. So that was my lack of enthusiasm for a hamburger. I really do <laughs> like a good hamburger. And I'm thinking back to this um, particular restaurant in my hometown that's been serving them for decades, how much I enjoy those and, and could really probably have them every day for lunch. So Vivaldi, yeah, I mean, he's he's the same, like you said. And, and occasionally, you know, if, if you're doing a different solo instrument, he wrote him for all kinds of solo instruments, all kinds of double concerti, triple, I mean, you know, different combinations. I mean, it's like, do, do you like your hamburger with this kind of sauce or that kind of sauce? Do you want some cheese on there? Make it a cheeseburger. Vivaldi offers all of that across his hundreds upon hundreds of, of concerti. Huge variety. And I, to be honest, never get tired. I could have a whole show of Vivaldi and, and have enough contrast to keep it interesting, I, I really believe. So every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say, you you have like four Vivaldi concertos every season. What's going on? And I said, well, we've only covered like 30 of them in my 10 years as director or whatever it is. So yeah, I think he's he's under, underrated because of his production, so to speak. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it kind of uh, his own worst enemy in that regard and, and someone who was always, we, we, we think of, yeah, turning it out almost factory-like, but I think that's just the evidence of, of what a strong, imaginative mind he had. And, and, you know, you could also talk about some of his sacred works, which are phenomenal, the operas and things maybe that don't get quite as much spotlight as his, you know, four seasons, say. But like you said, a certain kind of intense quality to his music, a certain drive and, and energy there, which were you to dance it out would definitely be healthier for you than a hamburger every day. <laughs> yeah, totally true. I mean, this is a great example. Here's a concerto that I'm willing to bet many of you listeners have not heard before, and it's it's great music. Well, I'm really excited to feast on this Vivaldi. We have oboist James Austin Smith and violinist Owen Dalby as our soloists. Joined by Jeff Nuttall and Livia Son violins, Mina Basin viola, Joshua Roman cello, Doug Balliot double bass, and Pedro Mudzievich harpsichord. Antonio Vivaldi's concerto for oboe and violin in B flat major. Thank you. 
Man, it doesn't get much better than friends hanging out playing Vivaldi first thing in the morning. It's just the spirit, and it's, it's amazing because it's one of those things. I remember um, as a kid growing up in Canada, the National uh, Gallery of Canada bought a Barnett Newman painting called The Voice of Fire. And it's an amazing painting, but it's just like three big strips of color. And I remember a lot of farmers in the prayers were like, I could do that, no problem. Million and a half dollars for that? That's crazy. So, um, turns out it's worth a lot more than a million and a half dollars now. Uh, and it's really cool. But Vivaldi's the same way. The formula is really simple. Fast, low, fast. You could, you know, this and that. It's always the same. But within that sort of restricted structure of the three movement form, he's endlessly inventive and imaginative and full of spirit and beauty. It's a, it's a real testament to his genius to be so prolific and so consistently good across the board. Okay. Those are four notes. Doesn't seem like much. Brahms proceeds in the piece you're about to hear, Opus 25, G minor piano quartet, to build this massive first movement, 10-minute movement, one of his great sonata form movements, really based on those four notes. Everything grows from that. This was written in the late 1840s, premiered in 1850. Schoenberg, the great Arnold Schoenberg, who sort of transformed 20th century music, he loved this piece specifically because of that motivic development. And he loved it so much that Schoenberg arranged this quartet for full orchestra with cymbals and winds and the whole deal. And so it was a conduit to the 20th century. Schoenberg changed the course of music. And I love what Schoenberg said about this piece when he arranged it. He said, I arranged it for two reasons. Number one, I like it. <laughs> I like that. That's a good reason, right? Number two, it's always played badly. <laughs> specifically, he said, and I love this quote. He said, the better the pianists, the louder they play. <laughs> I can never hear the strings. That will not happen on stage right now. It's one of the great performances I've ever heard of this piece. Uh, and we have an amazing group, Enon Barnaton at the piano. And um, yeah, well, he's not here yet, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Livia Sohn, violin, Nina Lee, cello, and Mina Bassin, viola. Uh, let's welcome them to the stage. Okay, fasten your seatbelts. This is a journey. Four movements. Uh, first movement that we talked about. Second movement, intermezzo with this scurrying, muted, almost Mendelssohnian trio, and then the magnificent slow movement, these extended, long orchestral lines, and then the movement that really stamped this piece from its, or, you know, from its beginnings is this gypsy last movement, uh, Rondo alla Zingarese, in the Hungarian gypsy style, and you'll see the connection to bluegrass, you'll hear hammered dulcimers, <laughs> cembalums played by the piano, um, and it ends in a, in a flourish unlike any other. So enjoy this journey, Brahms G minor piano quartet. <laughs>
the visceral energy of the Brahms G minor piano quartet live on stage from the Dock Street Theater in Charleston, South Carolina. Livia Sohn, violin. Mina Bassin, viola. Nina Lee, cello. And the incredible Inan Barnatan, piano. Really fantastic music there. And it's exciting to me to hear you know, piano kind of breaking in into this string setup, sometimes playing along with them, getting along, and then sometimes doing its own thing there. And of course, when you have a pianist like Inan Barnatan at the keyboard, I mean, you know there's going to be some real musical magic taking place. Jeff, you had the, you had the pleasure of speaking with Inan recently, right? Yeah, that was, I must admit, it was very exciting because he's one of my musical heroes. And so, and it's not my sweet spot interviewing people, but I, I was actually honestly really interested in his his journey and his approach to music. And it was really, uh, I, I had a great time. We could have gone on for another couple of hours. Well, I definitely enjoy listening in on two musicians like you and Inan catching up. So let's hear part of that conversation you had with Inan joining from New York and you, Jeff, remarking on just how inspirational he has been, even in this season of canceled performances. Everything you do, you do with this glint in your eye, with this boundless enthusiasm, and it's really always inspiring. And I've been sort of watching you in these difficult times. A lot of musicians are down and feeling bad, and understandably, but you just seem to have embraced the whole process. You're, you're playing and doing all sorts of projects. Can you tell us a little bit about some of that? I think one of the advantages of being in the creative profession is that you can respond creatively to situations. I think most people don't have that ability, not not only in terms of creativity. I mean, just you can't really change your the nature of your job. And we have the advantage of being able to do a lot of different things and in a lot of different ways. So from home, I've been doing recitals from home. I've, I've had several broadcast streamed recitals from my living room. I've, I've been working on a transcription of a Rahman of symphonic dances, which I've transcribed for solo piano. And it's something I've always wanted to do. And I've never had the, what seems like endless amount of time that it takes to learn how to use a notation software and how to work out all the details of how you can shrink a whole orchestra into a single piano. But it's been fascinating and I've been able to just throw myself into it in a way that I wouldn't be able to if my normal quote-unquote life uh, was in full speed and I think there's no better time to think about how you can play something that requires other people by yourself than this time. Now, I have another question I was thinking about this because you're the most effortless pianist I've ever been around I mean you just in engulf music and it just comes out of you like it's been there forever i i'm just wondering two things how how well <laughs> how'd you get so good no how how you can seemingly learn things incredibly fast and almost by ear is how did you get there i guess my question is did you learn to play at such a young age it was just part of you and then the second part of the question is how how long like a new piece new concerto how long from zero to 60 so to speak will it take you well it's funny because it the first part of the question, I it is something I I grew up. I I've always had perfect pitch, and I've, it's always been part of the way that I learn things naturally is by ear. And I think the first eighty percent of learning something comes to me pretty easily. But 
the last 20% is really where our art is. I mean, that's what defines professionalism and that's what defines, differentiates somebody who's good and somebody who's worth listening to. It's easy in some ways, the, the, the more easy the first 80% comes to you, the harder it is to work at that last 20 or 10 or 5% because, you know, it already sounds good. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's like that in many professions. I mean, that last 10, 5, 2% takes so long sometimes and is the most painstaking work. And, and it's easy psychologically to say, well, you know, let's just leave it at 90%. And mm. I think that's that's the real struggle in terms of my musical and, and personal career is just to, to insist on on that last 10%. And, and it's, Do you get nervous performing? Not normally, I have to say. I, I feel like what by the time I go on stage, I try to... Uh, I get nervous for first rehearsals. Ah, okay. So before I know how it's going to go, if it's with an orchestra or a chamber group or whatever it is, that's where I, I kind of get nervous. But the performance, by the time I perform, I, I the, one, that there's a, a certain amount of, uh, hopefully, idea that I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but also, yeah. uh, there's a certain energy that takes over. The energy of the, the performance and the energy of the audience and, and all of that, that kind of takes away some of that nervousness. So in some ways, I'm more nervous to record and doing some of the things that I'm doing from home than, than to play in, in, in front of an audience. Huh. A friend of mine who is a, an actor told me once that for him, acting is like surfing. Whereas when great material meets an audience, there's friction and it creates a wave. And that wave is what you ride. You don't make the wave. I don't know if that makes sense, but to me, it's always like that when great music meets an audience, there is just this, this amazing energy that gets created in the hall. And if you just let yourself ride it, if you've done all the preparation and you know what you're doing and, and you've, you've gone to the point where you can just, like a surfer, just ride it and not try and force it, that's the most beautiful place you can get to in a performance. Speaking of recording, can you talk a little bit about the, the Beethoven uh, Piano Concerto project and what that was like and how's it going? What's yeah. happening with that? Well, that's, it's, it's amazingly done. Um, <laughs> this, yay. Um, this was one of the huge projects that started, what, five years ago. After a tour with one of my favorite orchestras, the Academy of St. Martin's in the Fields, based in London and we we've done several tours and I remember talking to one of them and saying oh how amazing would it be to record the entire Beethoven concerto cycle with you guys and they said you know what I I don't think we've ever done that which is amazing it's the most recorded orchestra in the world I think right. they have the most amount of recordings of any other orchestra and it's their core repertoire but they've never done the full cycle Huh. Uh, at wow. that point so so we i decided to go for it and and so with one of my closest friends and musical collaborators alan gilbert we recorded all five concertos plus the triple concerto plus the choral fantasy plus beethoven's own piano version of the violin concerto 
Wow. Yes. Yeah. So that took took about four or five years to get in the can, and it we just released. We released it in two parts, and then the second part just got released. Uh, wow! At the beginning of this month. God, this has been a long month. Yeah, Hank 10. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of Beethoven piano concertos for some reason. I just, what's, I, and this is like one of those questions you hate to when they ask you, but what's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? I'm afraid I do. Good. Uh, <laughs> okay. Let's comp- we'll compare notes. Well, I think, yeah, the fourth is, is my, my, my absolute favorite, I have to say. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I love all of them. Um, I really do. I, I, and in different ways. And, and I've grown closer to some of them through the process of recording them. And, but, but I've, I don't think I've, I'll, the fourth has a special place in my heart because I think it's somehow the most, the, uh, unlike a lot of Beethoven's pieces, the concertos are pretty public pieces. Mm-hmm. It's not like the string quartets or the piano sonatas that you feel like he was writing both privately and publicly. You really feel in the piano concertos that he's writing them for uh, as as for himself to perform and for for the performance aspect. And but the fourth seems to be at the same time a private piece as it as much as it is a public piece. It has so much philosophical. And, and lyrical splendor. Um, and, and yeah, so I just am I'm always drawn to that one, but it's hard to choose. Yeah, oh, that's great. Thanks. That slow movement is so great. I, oh. I love that. That's right. Insane. Can I change gears? I want to ask you, I'm interested, and hopefully everyone else will be too, that, that whole, your early life, you grew up in Israel, if I'm not mistaken, and then you went from there directly to London and sort of most of your formative student years were in London. Is that? Am I getting that right? Absolutely. You've done your research. So what? How, what? How long? What was it like growing up in Israel as a pianist? I assume you started young. And when did you make that that move to London? And how was that? I started very early, um, partly because my mother my mother had a piano in the house, a little upright that she played when she was younger, and every time she would she would kind of gravitate towards it and play. And and at a very young age, I uh, obnoxiously started correcting her from the other room, apparently, and <laughs> and or, or telling her she was playing this note and that note, and they discovered I had perfect pitch, and to get rid of me, I guess, um, sent me to piano lessons. You know, my my first teacher didn't think that I would amount to much because I refused to work. I was just play and play and play and play. I loved playing stuff from hearing. I wouldn't pay much attention to what's on the page. And then it was a long process, actually, to kind of retrain myself to to be much more meticulous and 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 and. But I'm glad in some ways because I never lost my love for music as a kid. I mean, I think a lot of children they stop after two years or four years or six years because it's it's such a chore. And for me, it was always such a joy to play music. Uh, at that age and then I was lucky to start with a couple of teachers who um, one of them was Victor Dervianko who was a student of Neuhaus and and came from kind of the great Russian slash German school and his and Natasha Tassan which was his assistant and they just taught me so much and but then I met this other teacher who 
lived in London. Her name was Maria Curcio, a student of Arthur Schnabel, the great Arthur Schnabel, and hmm. uh, which was another the other great Neuhaus and Schnabel were the great piano schools. You know that, that those were the, the legendary teachers. Neuhaus taught the great Russian pianists and, and, and Gilles and and. Richter and all these people and and Schnabel of course descended from from Beethoven almost and, and uh, he was a, his teacher's teacher's teacher I think was Beethoven yeah. um, and taught people like Fleischer and and some of the great pianists and so I met Maria wow. Curcio and decided to move to London to study with her she was such an incredible inspiration. How old were you when you ended up in London, teenager? I was uh, somewhere between 17 and 18. Mm. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, and then I was there for about 10 years and then I decided to move to New York. Okay, cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Hey, um, it would be, we'd be remiss to not talk a little bit about Charleston in the Spoleto Festival because that's where I've Uh, I'm lucky enough to to meet you and and get to play with you all through these years. You know, what do you think? Do you have any good good Charleston memories, uh, music or otherwise, to to share with us. Oh my God. I'm almost getting tearful just thinking about it. Cause it's, there is every, every, every festival has its own alchemy of what makes it great. And Charleston and Spoleto um, is just so, so special. And I, I mean, not to be too, but it, it's a lot of it is you. A music director is incredibly important, not only for, for, the programs and the people that they invite, but the, the, the tone that they set. And there's just this endless feeling of camaraderie and adventure. And, uh, and there's just this, this wonderful magic uh, that you create there. And of course the, 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 the audience and the, the hall and the city and is, is just so special, but, Really, even without it, it's just such a a feeling where musicians come and know that yes, it's about you know it's great to see your friends and and play with your friends and and see the it's kind of like a family. But first and foremost, it's about the spirit of adventure of of let's of of the music and and the programs and this constant simulation of oh I'm I'm gonna whether it's something new to me or not I'm it's just so fresh and 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 exciting and. Yeah, and of course we all come. We all we all love the food in Charleston. <laughs> that that yeah. helps. We should say that Inan is probably more of a food fanatic than I am, and that's saying a lot. It's really tough to not be with you this year. I hope that we can do it in twenty one. Absolutely, I feel like you know our lives. Um, we have a really weird sense of time, anyway, um, as musicians, because we. We're constantly planning two or three years ahead at the same time as thinking about next week and next month. And um, and when we get together, uh, a lot of the time, it's as if no time has passed. And whether that's one year or two, um, I'm really looking forward to the next time we get together and play. Yeah, well said. I And I'm so... It was just great to catch up with you today. And, and thanks so much for joining us and taking this time, Enon. Thank you. It's good to good to talk to you, really. Well, that was a real treat to have some time to talk both music and and life with Enon Barnaton. Enon really does just have this way of 
enveloping the audience in the music. You feel like, you know, you're just brought that much closer into these works he's playing and that there's this barrier that's been taken down between audience and, you know, the source, what the composer had in mind. And just this level of accessibility there is something you can just really feel through his music. Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Bank of America and the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Special thanks to Spoleto Festival USA. The engineer for this podcast is Duke Marcos. The producer is A.T. Shire. The executive producer is Sherry Hutchinson. I'm Bradley Fuller. I'm Jeff Nuttall. And until next time, take care.